We've been going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians uh, for what seems like an eternity now. Uh, we even had a break in the middle of it, but we've just been getting so much out of it. It's such a rich uh, scripture, a uh, letter written by Paul to a church in the city of Corinth. And we've honed in on it really because uh, we felt that it was a, a church of a similar age to us when Paul wrote the letter. And actually Corinth is a similar city uh, to ours in, in here in Liverpool. Uh, a church, uh, sorry, a city based on trade, a city with a love for sport, a city with a, a lot of multi- multiculturalism. And we thought that there would be some brilliant stuff in there for us, and indeed there has. And Paul has been writing um, to address a whole number of issues uh, amongst the church. Uh, we've looked at issues of worship, we've looked at issues of rivalry growing up in the church, we've looked at issues uh, of, of poor teaching, um, and more recently we've seen some things about how they worship together. We've looked at some gender roles, we've looked at how they practice things like the Lord's Supper. Basically, they're making all sorts of mistakes that Paul really wanted to put right so that they could live out their faith together in a way that would be pleasing to God and that would have the best possible effect on the city of Corinth. And in the last couple of weeks, we've really started to hit the business end of, of 1 Corinthians, some of the most famous, rich passages of the Bible, not just of the letter itself. And we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 12. Both Matt and Chris have brought us brilliant teaching. It's available on, online if you want to check it out on the website or on iPod, uh, uh, iTunes, or even through Church App. If you haven't been on Church App yet, get on Church App. Um, preachers are all there. They've been looking at spiritual gifts and how they are good for the body of Christ and, and what they are for. And Chris last week was talking about one body with many parts, but every part has a function and a role and is vital. And this week, we're going to read probably one of the most famous and loved passages of Scripture ever. We're going to, without any further ado, I'll read it right now. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read it together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me just pray for us as we unpack this. Lord God, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for inspiring him, Lord, to write these words to us. We pray this morning you will minister, minister to us, Lord. You will let these words sink deep into our hearts. And you will bless us this morning. And you will use me, Lord, to uh, just communicate what you want to bring to your church this morning, Lord God. Amen. It is a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture, isn't it? It really is. It's so full of rich truth and memorable quotes. And it's a passage so beautiful that actually even non-Christians like it. It is apparently the most popular passage to be read at church weddings. Hands up if you had it at your wedding. Those who are married, did anyone have this one at your wedding? I think I did. It's a long time ago. <laughs> Can't really remember. Don't tell Debbie. I'm pretty sure we had it. Um, but yeah, if you got married in the church, chances are you will have had this passage as part of your, your wedding. And actually as well, even popular at funerals, there's a picture of Tony Blair there. He read the 1 Corinthians 13 at the funeral of, of Princess Diana, England's rose. Um, it's profound and important, and it teaches us what love perfected looks like. And I guess couples choose it because for them, it embodies the love that they aspire to share with each other. And it provides a picture of perfect harmony, perfect unity, and perfect human kindness and love. But I want to suggest that perhaps, perhaps, it's been a little overused and almost cheapened in our society today. To many, it's less a divinely inspired picture of love and more almost a set of soppy, greeting card type platitudes. Less a piece of divinely inspired scripture, more a tattoo to have on your foot. That's not my foot, Peter, no. I don't wear nail varnish. Uh, um, how about some art for your staircase at home? Or even a pair of slippers or shoes. Are they slippers or shoes? Thank you very much. I fear that this passage, and I'm sorry if anyone's got those stairs at home, by the way. <laughs> Chris has just changed his, uh, his plans for his house. I fear this passage has been maybe unfairly and unjustly seized by the wedding industry, if you like, and claimed as its own, when actually this passage is not written with weddings in mind. It wasn't. Paul didn't write this to be read from a lectern by your favourite auntie or uncle or friend, while the bride and groom gaze softly into each other's eyes. He didn't. That's not to say he can't. It's not a bad thing, but he didn't write it for that. Paul wrote this passage as part of a letter to an immature church in a decadent city because he wanted to help them try to understand how to live out their faith in the most effective and life-enhancing ways possible. So if it's not about uh, romantic love, what is it all about? What kind of love is Paul really 
describing, just to say it's not about Brendan. Should have said that earlier. Okay. It's been really enlightening recently. Uh, Sandra, who was singing for us this morning, uh, she's over here from France. Uh, she speaks five different languages. I've been helping her get to work each morning. She works near me. Uh, me, and, me and Debbie have been spending some car journeys with her. And actually, speaking to someone who speaks French, it's been helping me to brush up a little bit on my French. Um, still not very good, but uh, we do our best. But it's really interesting, I think, speaking to someone to whom English isn't their first language. Because English is actually full of silly rules, um, that, rules that are constantly then broken, uh, pronunciations that make no sense, inconsistently applied throughout. And it's hard to learn as a language, and it's even harder if the city you're living, you're living in and trying to learn that language is Liverpool. Because <laughs> we do all sorts of weird things to, to, uh, to, to English. Trying to explain to Sandra that you don't really need the word to in English. I'm going the Asda. I'm going the shops. I'm going the chippy. Sandra's like, you just don't use the word? You, you don't need the word? She's like, no, we don't need it. Why bother? It's difficult. But actually, as complicated as English is, <coughs> it's also sometimes a language of oversimplification. And this passage is a case in point. Because we only have one word for love. It's love. That's the word we use in, that pas- in this passage and in Scripture. Whenever the word is needed, love, in English, it's there. It's love. But actually, the Greeks had several words for love. And Paul was writing in Greek, and these are some of the words they had for love. We had philia. And please, if you're, if you're a Greek scholar, I know I'm dropping accents and all sorts all over the place that aren't quite there, but you get the picture. Philia. And if you think of Philadelphia, it's a city of brotherly love, if I remember rightly. Or friendship love, I should say. And philia was the Greek word that indicated a love between friends. And then you had, anyone want to pronounce it? Storgi, or something like that. I only know Greek for ordering food. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of Italian. Storogy. Uh But that was the love between family members. So the love you would have for your brother, or your sister, or your mother, or your father. And then there's eros. Romantic love. The language of love. We know that this passage isn't meant to be about romantic love because actually the original language, Greek, tells us so. In fact, the Greek word for love used throughout this passage, is this one. Agape. Agape. And in Greek (coughs) literature, the word agape, historically, was only found a tiny handful of times until the New Testament came along. And then suddenly, it was everywhere. It was effectively a word for love almost invented for the New Testament because it communicated a type of love that, that wasn't otherwise described or explained in language. Over 300 times it appears in the New Testament. Agape is a love that isn't romantic or, or familial, primarily, but is self-sacrificing and selfless. That is undeserved and often unrequited. Put simply, it is the love that God has for humanity. This is a love personified by God. It's not a love that is easy for us as humans to live up to. If you don't believe me, try taking the word love out of the passage and put yourself in. In fact, I've failed to do that. I've put Jesus in there. 
if you took Jesus out of there and put yourself in there, imagine trying to live up to that. Imagine Chris is patient. Chris is kind. Chris does not envy. Chris does not boast. Chris is not proud. Chris does not, does not dishonor others. Chris is not self-seeking. Chris is not easily angered. You know, Debbie, my wife, is away this weekend. I've been quite easily angered by my kids at times when I've been on my own this weekend. As I try and live up to this passage, I realize like, it's really hard. This is not the sort of love that comes easily to me and to us as humans. And it's not the sort of love where if you're gazing into the eyes of your bride or groom, you can easily say, yeah, I'm going to do all this. It's going to be great. It's more than that, isn't it? When you put Jesus in there, when you put Jesus in there, it sums up God's love for us, doesn't it? Jesus is patient. Yes, he is. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking, not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Jesus never fails. Guys, agape sums up God is love. God is agape. This is the love that God has for us. And it is, we see it throughout the New Testament. Almost wherever Jesus talks about love, he uses agape. In John 13, sorry, the text is a bit smaller, 34, 35. Every, every time you see love in this passage, it's agape. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then we heard it before in the Remembrance Day video, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Can you see? It's a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that gives without the expectation to receive. And we see all the way through Jesus' life, him demonstrating that love in spades. He was servant-hearted. He was sacrificial. He healed people, even when it put him at risk of criticism and even arrest. He just loved people and healed them because he saw their need and poured it out. He washed his own disciples' feet. He showed servant-heartedness. He ministered to and encouraged his disciples, even when he was suffering mental and physical torture and close to death. He loved them and he blessed them and he taught them. He invested time and energy in loving the people which society considered to be outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the poor, the lame, the unloved. Jesus' life on earth is the ultimate demonstration of self-sacrificing, generous love. And his death on the cross is the ultimate act of agape in history. In sacrificing himself, in enduring physical, emotional and spiritual torment, ensured that we don't have to. There's nothing that we could ever give him in return that would ever match that extravagant, life-giving thing that he did for us. And nor does he demand anything of us other than to simply believe and trust in him that that sacrifice is enough for us to be reunited to his Father. So you see, to reduce this passage to slushy romance does it a disservice the amazing love described here tells us something far deeper 
It describes the love that a saviour has for his people and that he wants his people then to live out with each other. I thought it might be useful at this point to throw in a story of Agape in the real world, as it were. I don't mean that Jesus' world wasn't real, but you know what I mean, in the, in the, modern, in the modern world. And this is a story of a, a place called Crete and of a man named Nikos Kazantzakis. He's an author. I think he wrote quite a famous book, which I've now... Oh, he wrote Zorba the Greek or something like that. A quite famous writer who I know nothing about, <laughs> clearly. But in his memoirs, he wrote about an experience that he had on the island of Crete, where he lived in the first half of the 20th century. You see, in Crete, there was uh, an incredible spirit of hospitality, of care for the stranger. The stranger in, a, in your village was almost like a god. You honoured them, you loved them, you welcomed them in. If you knocked on the door in a Cretan village, you would, it would be open for you whatever time of day, and you would be welcome. And Kazantzakis tells the story of how he once entered the Cretan village late at night, not his hometown, and the village was largely asleep. And he was wondering where to knock for refuge. And he decided, do you know what, I'll go to the priest's house. That is the best place to go. The priest especially has a, a duty of care for the people. I'm sure I'll get a welcome there. And an old woman heard Kazantzakis in the street and opened her door to him. And she was poor and she was old. And Kazantzakis didn't wish to trouble her, didn't wish to ask her for hospitality. So he simply asked her for directions to the priest's house. And the lady obliged and she led him there, and Kazantzakis knocked on the door, and I'll, I'll read what he says from there. It's on the doorstep of the priest's house now. She kept looking at me, not going away. If you wouldn't mind a poor house, you could come and lodge with me, the lady said. But I had already knocked on the priest's door, and I heard heavy steps in the yard. The door opened, and standing in front of me was an old man, with a snow-white beard and long hair flowing down over his shoulders. Without asking me who I was or what I wanted, he extended his hand. Welcome. Are you a stranger? Come in. I heard voices as I entered. Doors opened and closed, and several women slipped down hastily into the adjoining room and vanished. The priest had me sit down on the couch, my wife, he said, is a little disposed. You'll have to excuse her. But I myself will cook for you. I will lay the table for your supper, and I've prepared a bed so that you can sleep. His voice was heavy and afflicted. I looked at him. He was extremely pale, and his eyes were swollen and inflamed as though from weeping. But no real thought of misfortune occurred to me. So I ate, slept, and in the morning the priest came and brought me a tray of bread, cheese, and milk. I held out my hand, thanked him, and said goodbye. God bless you, my son, he said. Christ be with you. I left. And at the edge of the village, an old man appeared. Placing his hand over his breast, he greeted me. Where did you spend the night, son, he asked. At the priest's house, I said. The old man sighed. Ah, the poor fellow. And you didn't catch wind of anything? What was there to catch wind of, I said. His son died yesterday morning. His only son. Didn't you hear the women lamenting? I 
heard nothing. Nothing. They had him in the inner room. They must have muffled their laments to keep you from hearing and being disturbed. Have a pleasant journey. And my eyes filled with tears. Guys, that is the kind of agape love that we're talking about. A love which can see past immediate pain and sorrow and immediately what's going on in your own life and which looks out for others. And that is the love that our God has for us. You know, God lost his only son to death. But he knew that he had to do it for us. That is agape. That is what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Let's move on. So what purpose is Paul describing love? Why, why is he telling the Corinthian church right here about love? Because hopefully we've, we've worked out what, why, what, he, what kind of love he's talking about, but why here? Why now? Because the bit we're looking at at the moment is kind of, it's about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, the past couple of weeks, we've heard vitally important stuff about spiritual gifts, about the importance of the body, about gifts spread throughout the church working to complement each other, that all parts are necessary and important for the life of the church. And next week, we'll go back to spiritual gifts. We'll be looking at how specifically certain gifts are to be exercised within the body. And yet in between the two, Paul breaks off and delivers this passage all about love. Has he lost his train of thought? Forgotten what he was talking about? Maybe his careless PA got some pages mixed up when she was filing for him, accidentally dropped a page for another letter into this one. Maybe it's just a silly mistake. No, actually this hymn to love is placed there really deliberately. In the middle of his section on spiritual gifts, because these gifts can only be properly exercised in love with agape. These varied and complex gifts are great, but if you don't understand them in the context of loving each other within a community, they go to waste. In fact, far worse, they will do damage. If we're truly going to get spiritual gifts, we need to get agape. There's nothing wrong with wanting spiritual gifts. In fact, Paul says uh, just before chapter 13 that we are to earnestly desire the greater spiritual gifts. We should want them. We should want to see them grow in our body. But in chapter 13, Paul is keen to ensure that we understand exactly what they're for and who they are for. Remember, we've laid the foundation of the church as the body of Christ with many parts and all parts being vital. That we all suffer together, we all rejoice together, we look out for each other. And actually, he started to tell us about some of the specific gifts. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 is far from the only passage in which it talks about gifts. There's a handy chart there which tells you about all the different spiritual gifts which are listed in the Bible. But you know what? Unfortunately, spiritual gifts are given to human beings. And we like to compete and compare and measure ourselves against others. And Paul is writing about this here because it's a big problem in Corinth where gifts are starting to be used as a source of pride and status and for one-upmanship. 
We saw it in Jesus' lifetime, didn't we, with his disciples. Remember, they used to argue amongst themselves, who's the greatest, which one of us is the best? And it's happening here in, in Corinth too. I've been teaching my son George to play top trumps. Anyone play top trumps? It's a card game. There's all sorts of different categories. You can do Star Wars one or a football one or whatever. And it's a, a deck of cards and there's loads of different characters and each character's powers are listed. And you look at your card and you think, which is the best one on my card? And I'll say, right, uh, this guy's got... 90 for speed, what, what have you got? And George will tell me what his character's got for speed, and if I win, I get his card. And I like to think, well, I don't like to think really, but I, I kind of think that might have been what was going on in, 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 in Corinth a little bit. That they were turning their gifts into grounds to compete and compare. Hey, well, I've got 90 out of 100 for prophecy, but you're running 85. I'm the best. <laughs> yeah, but you've only got 35 for tongues. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 80. It's farcical, isn't it? But it can happen. You know, it's not that big a step to go from a position of, God, thank you for blessing me with this amazing spiritual gift, to, I am a gifted prophet. Everyone listen as I bring you God's word constantly and tell you all the amazing things that he has said to me in my special time with him and that he has spoken to only me because I am the gifted prophet. It can happen. So Paul says, the Spirit didn't give you these gifts to puff you up and to make you feel good about yourself and build you into these super Spirit-filled Christians for your good and for your, your self-aggrandizement, if that's a word, I think it is. If that's what you're looking at spiritual gifts for, you have well and truly misunderstood because sticking with the idea of prophecy, Paul says clearly, chapter 13, verse 2, that even the most wise prophet who can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge is useless if they do it without love. Prophecy, prophecy? prophecy without love is useless. It's just a vanity exercise for the person bringing the prophecy. See how important I am as I tell you what God has spoken to me. Aren't I holy? Actually, the gift are supposed to be exercised in love for the benefit of the body. And in chapter 14, we'll see specifically that prophecy is for the strengthening, encouragement, and comfort of the people, not of the prophet, of the people that he's prophesying to or she's prophesying to. It's not for puffing up. It's not for making us feel great. It's to be used for the body. And the challenge Paul is giving is to check our heart on our motivation, with all of our exercising of these amazing spiritual gifts. Even acts of kindness and service, if done for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation, can be rendered meaningless. If we're not doing it for love, if we're not doing it for the body, for someone else, and someone else is better, not, ours, not our own, then we're getting it wrong. It gains us nothing. The spiritual gifts are utterly secondary to love itself. In fact, he points out in the passage that, do you know what, the spiritual gifts, they're not here forever. They'll pass away. They're not eternal. You've got them now, use them, but they won't last. They won't be here in the next life. We shouldn't concern ourselves with over-focusing on acquiring and all these amazing gifts and gaining status from them because they're not things that we can take with us. 
but love, love will remain. And Paul closes the chapter, one of the most famous of all of his verses of Scripture. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love, ever thought, why is love the greatest? I think one of the reasons is that love is the only one of those three things that will last into eternity. If you think about it, when Jesus returns and he establishes a new heaven and a new earth, we won't need faith anymore. Because everything that we've been believing for will be there. There won't be any doubt as to whether God exists or not. We'll be standing in his midst. The Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Faith, we don't need it in eternity. Because <laughs> we'll know all the answers. And hope. There's no hope in eternity because everything we've ever hoped for is there. It's done. We're living in the beauty of it. We'll be living in complete fulfillment and joy and we will lack nothing. There'll be nothing to hope for because we'll have everything. But love, there'll be love. There'll be so much love. There'll be the love for our Savior, which in his presence we will not be able to hold back from just pouring out towards him in worship. And the love which he bestows upon us as he is finally reunited with his creation. Love will remain. Love will abound. Love will be perfected in eternity. And that is why it is the greatest. So you see what Paul's saying. These gifts are great. Use them. Love using them. But let love be the motivation because the gifts won't last forever. Let's think about how we apply this then here in, in Freedom Church in the 21st century. I hope I've built up a picture for you that this passage is not just a nice bit of sentiment for married couples to get slushy about. But this passage is, is a beautiful pattern for the church, the body of Christ to follow. The template in which we, as spirit-filled believers, are to grow up together and to live together and to exercise to one another because we ourselves have been transformed by that ultimate act of agape love. What does this actually look like? Would you know what, within this congregation, and indeed any congregation, there can be all sorts of problems at any one time. I know, just in this room, of so many different health issues and things that people are struggling with, short and long term. We know there are mental health issues, from depression to all kinds of other things. There are orthopedic issues, physical pain, arthritis. There are serious life-threatening illnesses, such as cancer and aplastic anemia. There are respiratory illnesses. There are food intolerances. There are many, many more things amongst us as a body where, do you know what? There are people suffering and struggling. And do you know what? Forgetting about health for a moment, but there's plenty of other issues that people face right here, right now in this room. Not illnesses, but other circumstances, like grief for the loss of a loved one, either recently or way back when. There's loneliness. Whether that's a lack of friendship loneliness or, 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 or a desire for a, a partner of romance. 
There's, there's some loneliness here. There's abandonment. There's barrenness. There's poverty. There's familial breakdown. All within the body of Christ. We're broken people in so many ways. And as I think about it, I just think, wow, this is, this is hard. This is tough. Life throws up all kinds of things. I myself have not had a, a brilliant time recently. I won't go into it, but as I reflect on what's happened to me so far as I've worked things out, and I read these words, words of Paul, I think I've realized two incredible truths for me and, and for everyone in the room. Number one, that God knows our circumstances and has made the ultimate loving sacrifice for us by sending his son to death. And that ultimately, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the ill health that we experience here on earth will be gone. Because he's coming back to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And that we are heading for a place of ultimate satisfaction and joy. Where we experience God's agape love in all of its fullness. And that gives me great hope and great peace, actually. But you might say, oh, that's great, but what about now? What about the here and now? Well, here's the other thing I've realized. That in the meantime, as I wait, as we wait, God has put us in the midst of a community, of a body, which he has specifically gifted to help us walk through whatever else life throws at us. And he's shown that community how to exercise that same agape love that he showed for us when his son died on the cross. We are surrounded by people who, are, who he has equipped with gifts and with love to care for us. Even when they themselves are suffering. And as I look and reflect on even just the last few weeks for myself, I can see in my own experience how I have benefited from the gifts that are amongst you guys in the body. I've had words of encouragement and love through the gift of prophecy that he's given Matt. I've enjoyed listening to the words of unswerving confidence and trust as I've listened to Jim, who I believe has the most, one of the most obvious gifts of faith I've ever seen. What a man of faith. As you listen to him pray, it's impossible not to be stirred and more confident as you listen to that. I've benefited from the gifts of leadership and encouragement from the likes of Chris and Tor and Barry, my boss at work, all of whom have exercised that leadership with care for me as, as, I've, as I've not been at my best. I've experienced the gifts of service and mercy from my wife, who's been loving me so much, even when I've not been much fun. And I've benefited from the gifts of discernment and wisdom as I've spoken to my father and my father-in-law, Ken. When I've, when I've spoken to them, they've just poured out just so much experience and wisdom that God has gifted them with. And that has ministered to me, that has blessed me. As I think about all that, I wonder how any of us could possibly get through the struggles we face in life without these amazing gifts of the Spirit that are being exercised amongst us in love and actually are being exercised by people who themselves are struggling. But they exercise them in agape, self-sacrificing, looking beyond their own issues to serve the body. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, we're not meant to walk 
through the Christian life as lone wolves who solve their own problems and just get on with it. We are designed to be in communities such as this where we are equipped with gifts and we are shown the pattern of selfless love with which to exercise them for the benefit of the community, for, for the glory of God. And as we do that, as we minister to each other, as we, as we help each other, as we serve each other our spiritual gifts with agape, what does the world see? It sees something special. It sees something amazing. It sees something unusual and countercultural. A community where we put other people's needs first. Then we're not just out for it for ourselves. Then we're not just looking to see how we can gain the most for ourselves before we think about anyone else. No, that's not what we're here for. We show them something different. We show agape. We show love beyond ourselves. And we are gifted to do that by the Holy Spirit. I want to finish by encouraging and challenging us. Uh, a challenge-ment, if you like. There's a new word for you. Just made it up. Told you English was hard to learn. Firstly, are you in need this morning? Are you suffering? Can I challenge you that you are among a body of spiritually gifted people? You are amongst a body of people who are equipped and are full of that agape love for you. There is help here. There is love here. The same love that has set us free from sin. The same love that Jesus displayed on the cross. That love is in the hearts and minds of this congregation, this church. And they are willing and able to exercise that love to each of you as you need it. So please do not miss the opportunity to be ministered to this morning and on an ongoing basis through our life groups, through our, through just getting to know us, through deep relationship with us. There is an opportunity part of the body of Christ here. Don't miss it. And secondly, are you a spiritually gifted, agape-filled believer here this morning? The answer is yes, in case you need a clue. And in that case, I want to challenge you. I'm going to stop using that word, it's silly. To look beyond your own circumstances and to lift your head and to look for opportunities right here, right now, this morning and ongoing to exercise your gifts, to bless the body of Christ. Think about who might be here this morning who might be lonely and desperate for some company. It was just an invite to lunch or a trip to the cinema or for a, a drink or a coffee this week would just mean the world to them. Who might be new here and looking for relationship and fellowship? Who might not be in your friendship group just yet, but might look at it and long for it and just be waiting for an invitation? Can we look out for them? Who might be here in need for prayer, for healing, having suffered greatly and just, just need someone to stand alongside them and lift them up before God again? Who may be desperate for an encouraging word from God that only a gifted prophet can bring them in seconds, easily. Who might really appreciate an act of service in their struggle just to make life that little bit easier? Mowing the grass, painting a wall, 
just something to help. And who might just be lacking a bit of faith and vision at the moment and just require that wise injection of faith-filled truth that you can just bring easily in a prayer or an encouraging word. Can I encourage us, guys, as the body of Christ, to step out and to minister in our gifts in love for each other?